Uh, if you can begin making your way back to your seats, and as you do, grab your Bibles and head on over to 1 Corinthians. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's going to be a blue one somewhere in front of you in the row that you're in, or maybe you just brought the digital version, and that's certainly okay as well. Uh, but what we've been doing over the last several weeks is we've been stepping through the book of 1 Corinthians, the letter of 1 Corinthians, and we're going to keep doing so um, for the majority of 2019, and that'll be where we spend our focus and our attention, because we want to try to unpack and understand what the Apostle Paul had to say to this church that he started. He came in to the city of Corinth. He found a place where there were people gathered, learning about God. It was a Jewish synagogue, so it was a very Old Testament idea there. And he began telling them about Jesus. And they had some issues with that, and they kicked him out. And then he went and found some other people who would listen to him tell them about Jesus. And this church starts... And for about 18 months, the Apostle Paul lived there, he worked there, he taught there, he spread the gospel there, he planted this church, and then he went away to a different city to do the whole thing over again. And now, probably about three to five years later, after he left, he's writing this letter back to this church in Corinth. It's not the first time that he's written to them, and actually in this book, Paul references that he wrote him a letter prior. And so we don't have that letter. But what we do have is the second letter, but we call it 1 Corinthians because it's the first one we have a copy of. And he's writing to address a couple things. He's writing to address some things that he has heard. It was in chapter 1, he talked about what Chloe's people had said to him and reported to him. But he's also writing to answer some of the very specific questions that they have asked him about what it looks like to live out your faith. What it looks like to be a Christian living in a non-Christian world and trying to do so in obedience. And so he begins to walk through those things and address those things. And where we've been over the last couple weeks was in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul cracks open the hood, if you will. If I can use a car metaphor, he cracks open the hood of the car of what separates those who love and trust and follow Jesus and those who don't. It was in chapter 1 verse 18 that Paul said, the word of the cross is folly for those who are perishing. But for those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And through the rest of that chapter and chapter 2, he begins to just ask and answer the question, what makes this gospel news go from that is utter foolishness to this is powerful? What goes on in creating that difference. And we saw last week as we walked through those things and looked at the answer he specifically gives. Is that there's two things. And the primary thing is that the Holy Spirit reveals. The Holy Spirit reveals to those who are perishing the things of God. The heart of God. The, uh, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he turns the lights on. It's the Holy Spirit that saves. It's the Holy Spirit that makes the dead become alive, gives sight to the blind. The Holy Spirit is the one doing that. We saw that last week. And secondly, we learned last week that for those who are saved, they have been given the Holy Spirit, whose job in part is to teach and instruct. So Paul has, over the last several weeks, our contrast, if you will, as he has written, has been us thinking about people who are saved and unsaved. And as we start in verse 14, this morning of chapter 2, we're going to see that contrast play itself out in the first three verses again. We're going to just get our minds back engaged into that thought he had. But then as we start chapter 3, the contrast is going to change. The contrast no longer will be about those who are saved and those who are unsaved, those who have trusted in Jesus for salvation and those who haven't. The contrast will become those who have trusted in Jesus and are obeying and those who have trusted in Jesus and are not. 
That's where we go, and we'll find ourselves in chapter 3. And so where we are and where we'll begin is just reminding ourselves of what it is that the Spirit does. How we can understand these truths, the heart of God. The Spirit's job is to reveal to us the heart of God and then teach us and instruct us, give us understanding about the things that God has given us. The Holy Spirit unpacks that. Part of the Holy Spirit's job is to take what God has said in the Bible and help us understand it, make sense of it. So before we go any further, let's pray, and then we'll go to verse 14 of chapter 2, and we'll try to unpack and understand what Paul has to say. God, we thank you that you have spoken. You've, you've spoken to us in your word. You revealed things to us, and what we believe it's in our best interest to draw near and listen. And so we want to listen to what it is that you have to say. God, we pray that your spirit would, would teach and instruct us here this morning, that, we'd, that we would know just a little bit more than we knew before, but not, not in just a knowledge sense, but we'd know how to apply it. We'd know how to follow you more, that we would, wouldn't just have information, but there would be transformation. And God, we pray that you might help us To look more like Jesus today than we did yesterday. That as you work through your word and as your Holy Spirit works in teaching and instructing and giving understanding. That we may follow. That we may obey. So God we pray that you'd help us to understand what it is that you've said and how it applies to our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, let's go to verse 14 of chapter 2. We just want to get our minds back engaged in where we were and what we were looking at last week because the contrast that we'll see beginning in chapter 3 hinges on what is said at the tail end here of chapter 2. The natural person does not accept the things Of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned or judged. Let's just go on through 15 and 16 as well. The spiritual person judges or discerns all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understand the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of of Christ. So again, we have this distinction being made between the natural and the spiritual. So the natural person that is laid out and put forward does not accept, does not understand the things of the spirit because they're folly to him. So here Paul is saying, let's just kind of tie the dots together all the way back from verse 18 of chapter 1. The natural person is the perishing person. For the word of the cross is folly to the one who is perishing. Well, look at verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. It's foolishness, and he is not able to understand them. That, those words not able literally means without power. He doesn't have the ability to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. But now Paul tells us, About the spiritual person. The spiritual person or the person of the spirit judges or discerns all things. I don't know what translation and how it's going to get rendered for you. But in verse 14, the word discerned or judges is the same in verse 15. Where the word judges shows back up again. Here's the big idea. The natural person is the perishing person. And the gospel doesn't make sense, and it's folly because they don't have the Holy Spirit and can't unpack spiritual things. Now, the Apostle Paul often cites himself as exhibit A for what this looks like. And he will do so in chapter 15 of this book, 
He does so in First Timothy. He does so when he is, a, is before uh, Caesar at the end of the book of Acts. He cites himself as exhibit A for what this looks like. And he continually just references back to who he was and what he did before he met Christ. And how he was on his way with permission from the government to go imprison people who followed Jesus. Presumably for their trial and execution. It was at the end of Acts chapter 7 that the first Christian martyr is killed. That would be Stephen. At the very beginning of chapter 8, there was somebody there holding the coats of all of the people who threw the stones at Stephen. And that person was Saul, who would later become the Apostle Paul, who would later, 20 or so years, write a letter to the church in Corinth. And he says time and time again, I didn't get it. I didn't understand these things. In fact, Paul was fully convinced he was actually obeying the will of God by persecuting people who followed Jesus. And it wasn't until the Holy Spirit gave him understanding. The lights went off. He began to understand how foolish he actually had been. So here, here, here's just what we need to unpack and kind of just in thinking through the last couple weeks and to summarize this. If you're living and following Jesus, if you're living that out in your life, if you're making changes, if you're doing things the way that God's word would instruct you to do, it's not going to make sense to the world and culture around us. You might have family members who think you are foolish. You might have coworkers who think you are off your rocker. You're not going to find culture at large applauding you for your obedience to God's word. Because they think it's utter foolishness. And the difference, what causes that utter foolishness to eventually or to be then understood as the power of God is the work of God in our lives. And so the spiritual person in verse 15 is what Paul had past referred to in verse 12 and 13. The spiritual person is the person who has received the Spirit. In verse 12, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. The spiritual person in verse 15 understands those things because they have been given the spirit of God. Now, we use the word spiritual in our culture to refer to all sorts of things that the Bible doesn't refer to it as. Very simply, in the Bible, the spiritual person is the person who has the Spirit. They've placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. They have received the Holy Spirit who is now teaching and instructing and giving them understanding of what God has said in His Word and what He has done in their lives. But our culture is going to define spiritual as the person who prays, the person who finds ways to meditate, the person who might light incense, the person who interacts in, in, in pious ways. And there's all sorts of ways culture is going to try to define spiritual. And if you think about it, it's all geared towards and the emphasis is all on what the external actions are. And yet here, the spiritual person is not based on my or your external actions. It's based on something God's done and who he has sent to live inside of me. So this is the spiritual person. The person who has the spirit. There are no believers. People who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Who do not have the Holy Spirit. Now they may not listen to him really well. But it's not because they don't have him. That's going to become a little bit more clear as we begin to step through chapter 3. So chapter 3 then pivots. We're not in chapter 3, we're not any longer thinking about the saved and unsaved. We're thinking about the saved and those who act like it 
and those who don't, or those who act like the world. So the distinguishment changes. And our passage this morning, in the verses in chapter 3 that we're going to look at this morning, it's a, it's a take your temperature passage. It's an opportunity for us to take our spiritual temperature. Check your spiritual pulse, if I can use a different metaphor. It's a diagnostic passage for us. It causes us to ask some hard questions about how it is that we're living, about how it is that we're acting. And so if I could summarize the big idea for you, it's not profound and yet it is all at the same time. Act as you are. Act as you are. Live as you are. Behave as you are. Now what do I mean by you are? I want us to think back to what Paul said in chapter 1. Because he laid down the foundation for this church before he ever got to identifying behaviors that they needed to change. And the foundation that he laid down for them was that you have been completely enriched by God. You place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You have been, past tense, completely enriched. You're not waiting for God to give you more. You're not lacking in any spiritual gift. Present tense. You're not lacking in any spiritual gift. You're not waiting for some second blessing experience to get your spiritual gifts given to you. No. When you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Spirit goes to work in you and through you, and you're not lacking in any gift. So there's freedom to serve. You've been gifted to serve. Act as you are. Thirdly, in verse 8 of chapter 1, the promise is that you will be sustained by Christ Jesus himself. That he will hold you fast. Not that you and I find strength in and of ourselves to hold on in the midst of life's storms, in the midst of temptation, in the midst of whatever may come our way, but that he actually is the one holding us. So that's what Paul has unpacked for them That's where we begin to take our temperature and check our pulse. Are we living like those people? Are we living like those who have been completely enriched? Are we living like those who have been gifted in every way, not lacking any spiritual gift? Are we living like those who will be sustained and declared guiltless? Are we living like the world? For the Corinthians, the question would have been, are you living like Christians or are you living like Corinthians? Are we living like Christians or are we living like Americans? Paul's accusation at the end of this text in verses 3 and 4 is not that they are unsaved. His accusation is that they're behaving like they're unsaved. He's just told them, the Holy Spirit's revealed the things of God to you. You've been saved by the power of God who made you alive. You've been given the Holy Spirit. Now the Holy Spirit's instructing and teaching you and giving you understanding of the things God has given you. You've been completely enriched. You've been gifted in every way. You've been, you will be sustained and declared guiltless. But you're not acting like it. And he has some pretty harsh things to say to them. So let's go to chapter 3. We'll read verses 1 to 4 all together. And then we'll step through it. And take our temperature and check our pulse. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people. But as people of the flesh. As infants in Christ. I fed you with milk. Not solid food. For you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? He wants them to ask some diagnostic questions about themselves. 
He does so making some accusations about the things that he has heard from Chloe's people. And he's asking them, I want you guys to take your temperature here. I want you to check your spiritual pulse here. Are you acting as you are? Are you acting like the world around you? Let's go back to verse 1 of chapter 3. The word but obviously functions as a contrasting conjunction for us. So the ideas from chapter 2 are connected to the ideas here in chapter 3. But there's a difference coming. And that difference is not between the saved and unsaved, but between the saved and acting like it and the saved and not. And he calls them brothers. Now that word brothers is a family term in the Bible. If you've got a translation that says brothers and sisters, it's a good translation. That word does not have a specific male-only emphasis to it. It relates to and refers to and speaks to the family So notice here again, even in identifying things that they need to do differently, hard questions they need to ask themselves, he tells them and communicates and starts with, you are brothers, you are sisters. The idea here is not saved and unsaved, it's checking the pulse for those who would say, I have faith in Jesus, I follow Jesus. And he says to them, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people. Now that word address there is the same word Paul used in chapter 2, verse 6. It shows up in my translation as the word impart. It's the idea of communication. It's the idea of speaking. You might have one of those words in verse 6. Yet among the mature, we do impart. We do communicate. We do teach wisdom. Although it's not a wisdom of this age, it's actually wisdom from God. Here in chapter 3, verse 1, he's saying, look, I couldn't communicate to you in that way. I couldn't communicate to you as spiritual people. But as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. If you think about it, it's a terribly tragic statement that he's just made. Because throughout chapter 2, he went to great lengths to distinguish the natural person and the person of the Spirit. He went through great lengths all the way back through and beginning in chapter 1 verse 18 to distinguish the perishing person who believes the gospel is utter foolishness and the person who would say, I believe it. And now he's saying, look, when, when when I came to you, I couldn't actually communicate with you like the person who believes the gospel is the power of God. Because you guys were living like the world. You were living like Corinthians. You weren't living like Christians. He says you were of the flesh. Some of your translations might say sin nature there. Some of you, if you if you have a KJV, you might get the word carnal thrown in this passage as well. It's just the idea you're living out of a yet-to-be-redeemed sinfulness. Now, the word flesh that sometimes gets translated sin nature in our Bibles, and the NIV does it particularly often. The word flesh, though, it's, it's one of those words that's contextually defined. It gets, it gets thrown out all over the place in the Bible. And based on the context of what's happening around it, you understand what it means. So there's points in time where the word flesh just simply refers to a body. There's nothing spiritual about it. There's nothing theological about it. It's just your skin and your bones and your arteries and your veins and your tendons and your muscles. Flesh gets used that way. The word flesh, if used in a context referring to unbelievers, then has very directly a sin nature definition placed to it. But the word flesh, if used in the context of believers, refers to what I will call their yet-to-be-redeemed self. Now, what do I mean by that? If you read Romans chapter 8, you're going to find in Romans 8, between verses 17 and 26, this promise 
that we're awaiting the redemption of our bodies. It's not yet happened yet, but it's been promised to be. Paul's going to unpack that come chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians when he talks about how the perishable body will be replaced with the glorified imperishable body. It's one of the promises that we as believers look forward to where we don't have a body that's prone any longer to sinfulness nor feeling the effects of sin. You won't need eyeglasses at some point. And it's not that needing eyeglasses is sinful, but it's an effect of sin. But it was earlier in chapter 8 of verse or chapter 8 in Romans, that this idea of flesh gets unpacked for the believer. And I'm going to read it for you. If you've got your Bible, it's probably a little easier for you to turn to Romans 8 and see it. And, and I, this is a little heavy theologically, but I, it, it needs to be understood because it helps us understand where the fight is. When we think about and we're taking our temperature and we're checking our spiritual pulse, and if we may find that we're acting a little bit more like Americans than Christians... This helps us understand where the fight is. So you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. The Bible is clear that when you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you become a new creation. Jesus in John 3 said and used the words, you've been born again. The immaterial part of you has been saved and transformed. And so you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead, that's a key phrase right there the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. There's a distinguishment there. Between our bodies, what we might call the material part of us, and the immaterial part of us. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. There's the promise. Your yet-to-be-redeemed flesh will one day be redeemed. If the Spirit dwells in you, so what, what does that matter? Why? Okay, it's heavy theology, I understand that, but why does it matter? It matters in this sense. If we understand where our capacity for temptation is, where the propensity of it, where we're prone to be tempted lies, then we know how to fight it. And our flesh refers to this unredeemed part of us. It refers to this, this hard wiring that we were born with that is the result of the sinful nature, but now needs to be unwired and rewired. And so that means that my mind is going to naturally think in certain ways that are going to be contrary to the ways God would have me think. There will be desires my physical body has that will be contrary to the desires God would want me to have that I need to learn to say no to. And you see this play out just even on, on, on a very biological level. If you just think about how some people are prone to alcoholism and others are not, it's not just simply because some people had a drink and others didn't, although that is a contributing factor. But my grandfather was an alcoholic, drank and gambled himself to death. There's a propensity there. It's the flesh. And so even as a believer, my flesh may be inclined in that direction. It may desire those things. It's just one example. You got to know how to fight and where to fight. And it's not that I'm not a new creation. It's not that I've not been born again. It's that there exists still the ability 
and the propensity to live and act and think in a way that would be contrary to God, even though I have already been saved. That's what Paul's trying to unpack here. You're not acting, you're not living, you're not being people of the Spirit. You're acting as people of the flesh. You have desires that creep up and you're fulfilling and gratifying those desires. Somehow you think that being jealous and having an attitude of jealousy towards one another and then striving against one another is what God would have you to do and you look more like Corinthians than you do like Christians. He says, look, I couldn't communicate to you as people of the Spirit, but people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. He continues in verse 2, look there with me. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready. That word, those words not ready there, again, literally means without power. And even now, you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. What is Paul saying there? Here's what he's saying. It's just a word picture that he's trying to get them to unpack and understand his point. You're not behaving as those completely enriched, completely gifted, forever sustained. You're behaving like babies. Now, babies are cute when they do baby things. Nine, 10, 11 year olds doing baby things. It is not cute. Certainly if, it's certainly not cute if they're making the choice to do those baby things. I understand there are some who may not be able to make that choice. And let's be honest, I just want to be careful in what, I, what we're saying here. Baby things are cute, and babies are cute, and feeding a baby is cute, and changing a baby's diaper may not be cute, but you understand we're doing it for a season. But if you're 15 year old, if you're a 25-year-old and you're still looking to have a bottle, it's not cute any longer. Nobody in the nursery is going to want you climbing up on their knee for a little cuddle time and some milk. Remember when we brought Tobin home, he was still drinking a bottle. We, he showed up at the hotel when we got him, and he had a bottle there, just one, and a can of formula, and Carrie and I had to go find a, a grocery store, and we stood in this aisle full of Chinese formula, and, and found some worker, and, and showed her the can, and pointed, and gave the, help us, we are desperately lost and not knowing what to do look, and she went and found it for us, and we got it, and then we brought him home, and he stayed on that bottle, and in part it was for nutrition, but it was in part because it was just what he had done. And, and culturally, two-year-old little boys drinking a bottle in China is not a big deal. But I tell you what, every doctor, every health person we talk to in America all told us you got to get them off the Bible or the bottle. When are you going to wean them off? When are you gonna, and we just kept saying, finally we just had to say, we're not. We're going to let him just choose to give it up when he's ready. And he did. Baby things are cute when they're babies. Not cute as they get older. And Paul says, look, I fed you with milk, not solid food, because you weren't ready for it. But even now, you're still not ready for it. And this is where we get the terms milk and meat from. If you've been around the church for any period of time, that might be a phrase. I want, I want meat. That's how it often gets said. But I want us to think about that for a minute here. Because when I was in youth ministry, well, I, even back before that, when I was a student, I often would find myself with a couple other buddies coming home from camp or a retreat or a conference, and, and, and we'd want to get our youth pastor, and we'd, we'd want to be discipled after school, and we'd want to get together with him, and yay, hey, can you meet with us, can you, can you teach us things, and all of that is good, but we always, we always said the same thing to him, and then I had it said to me as, as a youth pastor, okay, we, we, we want to go deep, we want to go deep, we don't want, we don't want the frilly stuff, give us deep things, we had no clue what that meant, 
It just sounded like something that we should say. And then I become a youth pastor, and now I'm the guy getting asked, hey, can you meet with us after school? We did this camp thing. We did the retreat thing. God worked in our lives in a powerful way. We want, like, we want to learn more. Will you pour into us? And we don't, we don't want the freely stuff. We want deep. And it, and it got towards the end of my time at Community Grace, maybe a couple years before we began that transition out here. And, and, and I remember... Re- just asking the question back to a student in my office as, as we just sat there. And I think there might have been two of them in the room. And they were like, yeah, we want to go deep. And I said, well, what do you mean by deep? They didn't have an answer. You want this, but what do you mean by that? They, they couldn't come up with an answer of what it looked like. And I was like, here's, here's the two things that come to my mind when we say deep. Again, having been the kid that asked for that without having a clue what it was. So typically we refer to deep in this way. Give me things that I can't understand so that I feel a little overwhelmed by my lack of understanding. And I walk out of the room feeling like something's been accomplished even though I have no idea what was actually said. That's typically how the word deep gets defined. And I just challenged them. I pushed back to them. I was like, you know what I think deep actually is? I think it's actually being able to understand what God has said and how it applies to your life. I think that's the depth. Now, is there information that we can add to it? Is there, is there different, not even levels of understanding, but is there different um, just truths that get unpacked and unfolded? As you grow in your relationship with Christ? Absolutely. But that is far beyond give me a bunch of Greek words that I can't understand what they mean and don't tell me what they mean so that I can feel overwhelmed by not knowing what they mean and walk out of here feeling like I had a deep Bible study. See, if we define deep that way, just give me stuff that I don't know what it means and I don't know how it applies to my life and I'm not sure what to do with it, We've erred in the exact same way as the Corinthians. Where that Greek culture, remember back from Acts 17, we looked at it last week. All they did every day was get into the town square and tell something new and try to learn something new and wow each other by this new knowledge that they had never heard before and that nobody understood. How we define deep is so in important because maturity isn't just increasing in knowledge there's certainly a part of that but it's increasing in the ability to apply the knowledge you have to your life so let's try let's try to illustrate it this way okay two plus two equals four okay all right not deep okay some of you in in the mathematic world might say that that's milk okay We can play out that illustration in that way. All right, not a complicated math equation whatsoever. Um, We pull in a little trigonometry, a little Sokotoa, if you will. The depth has increased. All right, I chose this example because it was a couple years ago when I was building that Olaf snowball toss that some of you have seen at the fall festival I was trying to figure out my, my supporting angle on the back of it so that Olaf wouldn't just come crashing down. And, and I could not do it. I did the guess and check method a couple times and failed every time I tried to do that. And, and so I called a buddy of mine who's a math teacher and I said, all right, this is what I'm doing. I need some help. There has got to be some type of formula that you can work for me or you can teach me to work. And, and so he comes back with Sokotoa. Sine, cosine, and tangent, because I'm trying to find the hypotenuse of a 90-degree angle. And A squared plus B squared equals C squared. Okay, all of that stuff we learned in algebra and trigonometry and all those things. And sure enough, I took his instructions and I started working this problem, and I got the answer. And I went down to my power, my, my compound miter saw, I set the angle to the right place, chopped the saw... Lo and behold, it worked just like it was drawn up on paper to work. 
I actually tried to find the email address of my algebra teacher from high school to send her all of my work. Because I was that kid that was like, I'm never going to use this in, in real life. Until I was building an Olaf snowball toss and had a reason to use Sokotoa in real life. Okay, here's how I think this connects. That trigonometry is built on the foundation of that. I didn't set aside 2 plus 2 equaling 4 to figure out Sokotoa. I think the argument could even be made, if I was unaware of how 2 plus 2 adding together equals 4, I would be incapable of figuring out how to find the hypotenuse of a 90 degree angle. So depth is not moving beyond and finding more complicated ways of Christianity. It's not finding, un, it's not finding things that I can't understand and, and feeling overwhelmed by my lack of understanding, but yet accomplished in some ways because there was some depth there. I would contend to you, depth, the meat... In 1 Corinthians 3, is just the consistent and increasing application of the basics. This is in part why when you come to church, Jesus, the Bible, and prayer often are the points of application. Because we don't move beyond these things. However, the application of these things does grow. There is more that gets added to it, most certainly. But it's not like there is this different level of higher knowledge that Paul's wanting the Corinthians to aspire to. No, he's wanting them to understand the gospel. It's what he said in verse 17 of chapter 1. I I didn't come to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Let's the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly, but to those who are being saved, it's power. In chapter 2, verses 2 and following, he said, look, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I didn't come with a bunch of plausible words and explanations and and, and, and different ways of thinking about this. I just came to tell you about Jesus. And I just came to tell you that he, that he lived a perfect life that you couldn't live. And he died the death that you were on the hook for. And then he rose again. And I don't want you to move past that. But as you understand that, as you then begin to apply that to your life and understand and begin to unpack how you're completely enriched in him. How you've been gifted in every way by him. And how you will be sustained and declared guiltless in his presence. You do grow. There is depth that comes. But it comes through the application of the basics. So you learn Sokotoa by first learning 2 plus 2 equaling 4. This is what he's trying to unpack for them to get them to understand. Their power to understand. Their ability to unpack the spiritual truths that God would have them to understand. And for you and I, the same is true. Our ability to understand God's word. Our ability to understand who we are in Christ. I believe is directly linked to our willingness to obey the things that we do understand. You can't expect your relationship with Christ or even one another to grow if you just keep thinking like the world thinks and acting like the world acts and valuing what the world values. You're not going to find growth if that's what's true of you. 
Growth is going to come from taking the things that you do understand from God's word, those two plus two equal four things, and, and putting them into practice. And then understanding a little bit more of where, oh, okay, there, there's a little bit, there's a different area of life. There's, a, there's more detail there about what Christ did. And understand how that applies and impacts my life. Our ability to grow as believers, as disciples, our ability to make disciple makers is going to be directly tied and attached to our willingness to submit ourselves to God and obey what it is we do understand. And so to take our temperature, to check our pulse, there's a sense in this passage where there should be perhaps some alarm bells going off. Now be alarmed if your relationships look just like the relationships of the unbelievers that you know. Be alarmed. And it's not that there's not similarities. It's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that if you interact with other people in the exact same way as unbelievers interact with other people, you're not applying the 2 plus 2 equaling 4. Be alarmed if your personal finances look just like the personal finances of the unbelievers that you know. Now, we don't talk about that. But if you're out finding ways to multiply debt, leasing cars you can't afford, overbuying houses that you aren't able to pay for, I mean, whatever that might be, be alarmed. Because you look a lot more American at that point than you do Christian. And what's sad to say is that we'd say you're normal. We take the world's values and system of understanding. Be alarmed if you spend your time in the same way as someone who doesn't follow Christ spends their time. And that's not to say that you can't have hobbies. But if there's no difference in how you spend your days and the moments in your days between you and somebody who doesn't know the Lord, how are you taking 2 plus 2 and applying it to your life? Be alarmed if your political commentary sounds just like the unbelievers around you. Again, it's not to say there's not going to be similarities. But if somebody who does not know the Lord can espouse a political position and that sounds identical to you and your position and you do know the Lord... I'd be alarmed by that. Because knowing the Lord and what he has done for us causes us to interact differently. It actually causes it to be more complicated. It might actually cause everything to be more complicated, quite frankly. And it's in that sense that Christianity is not actually always easier. Because it's easy to just get angry at somebody and decide I'm never talking to them again. That's easy. Forgiveness is hard. It's easy to go take out an application for every credit card that would approve me and go rack up all sorts of debt. Plenty of people are doing that. There's commercials now. I just saw them last week on television about how you struggling to get approved for a credit card. Well, go to this site. They'll approve you. If you're struggling to be approved for a credit card, you shouldn't be getting more credit cards. But it's easy to go do that. It's difficult to work a budget and to not spend more than you bring in. It's easy to find all sorts of things to go spend your time doing. It's a little bit more difficult to prioritize serving in a local church. It's easy to spout out with political commentary that is devoid of anything that God has said in his word and it's actually much much more difficult to try to navigate real issues challenging issues but in a way that sees our citizenship first and primarily in heaven that's hard America first is easy heaven first is hard. 
take your pulse, to take your temperature. Are you acting more like an American? Or are you acting like a Christian? It's Paul's question to them. You guys acting more like Corinthians? Or are you acting more like Christians? Like I couldn't come and unpack and, un- and, and help you understand more because you guys are still at two plus two. Some of you aren't even sure that it equals four. Where are you? And take your pulse and check your temperature. Where are you? Growth and our relationship with the Lord increases as we take what we understand in His Word and apply it. And as we do that, there is a depth that comes. But we've never moved on from the basics. And part of the basic, if you still have your Bibles open, go back to chapter 8 of, or I'm sorry, verse 8 of chapter 1. Part of the basic is that Jesus has promised to sustain you, He has promised to hold you fast. And so you and I can have freedom to check our pulse and take our temperature and, and, and pursue changes because he's promised to hold us. He's promised to sustain us. So I want to give you just a few moments of quiet reflection And then the band's going to come and lead us in a song. I just wanted you to ask that question. Take your temperature. Check your pulse. Do I look more like an American or do I look more like a Christian? How I'm acting. What I'm saying. How I'm thinking. is Is it more like Christ or is it more like the people around me that don't know him? So would you take those moments and join them as they lead us?